When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com. Dan Pink on the signs of buoyancy. Lessons from social psychology on how to bounce back from rejection. This talk took place at London's Royal Institution on the 28th of February 2013. All right, good evening. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a delight to be here at the Royal Institution. I had never uh, been in this room or in this building ever before. And when I saw this room, I asked Hannah, uh, well, why is it configured this way? And she said, well, it was designed in the early days so that people could watch a cadaver being dissected. And that's when I realized what my role was here tonight. Uh, so... Um, it's good to be here. I should offer you a warning here at the outset. Um, in an earlier part of my life, before I chose the very, very noble calling of writing business books, <laughs> I worked in the equally noble calling of writing speeches for American politicians. And because of that earlier, my earlier experience as a political speechwriter, I developed over the years a certain kind of philosophy about effective presentation. It's not even a philosophy. It's a dogma. It's a very rigid ideology about effective presentations. Because I have discovered over the years that um, good presentations, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what language you're speaking, no matter whether the audience is large or small, no matter whether they're looking down on you or whether they're looking up at you, uh, good presentations anywhere, anytime, always have three key ingredients. There are three key ingredients in any effective presentation anywhere, anytime. Again, it transcends nationality, it transcends language, it transcends topics. Three key ingredients in any good presentation, anywhere, anytime. You might learn nothing else here tonight, but this you will learn. Three key ingredients in any effective presentation. They are brevity, levity, and repetition. <laughs> Let me say that one more time. Brevity, levity, and repetition. So I'm going to be reasonably brief so we have time for questions. I'm not going to be too, too severe and serious about it all. Um, and I will repeat the important stuff over and 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 over again until you want to scream. I'm a firm believer in the rhetorical power of repetition. I'm a firm believer. No, uh, but that's, not only, that's not, not only because I used to work in politics, but also because I have three children. So I'm used to it. So this might be a first here at the Royal Institution. I want to talk about sales. 
I don't think that Faraday was talking about sales when he was, when he was here. But I also want to talk about sales as sort of like the first layer of the cadaver, all right? Because I want to talk ultimately, I want to get deeper into sales as a way to get to this topic of buoyancy, and then use buoyancy as a way to get to the topic of who human beings are. So let's talk about, so we'll start off with sales. Um, I became very interested in sales, in part because of some, some uh, 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 a British guy. Uh, I wrote a book a few years ago called Drive. That book makes an argument. It makes, based on 50 years of social science, the argument goes like this. There's a certain kind of reward that we use in organizations, what I call an if-then reward, controlling contingent reward. If you do this, then you get that. The classic mainstay kind of motivator and reward we use in organizations, large and small, an if-then reward. If you do this, then you get that. What 50 years of research tells us is that if-then rewards are very, very effective for certain kinds of work, for work that is algorithmic, routine, mechanical, where you're following the rules, following a recipe, whether it's with your, your, your body turning the same screw the same way on an assembly line, whether it's with your brain adding up columns of figures. If-then rewards work like a dream for simple, mechanical, routine work. But that same body of research tells us that if-then rewards are far less effective for more complex, creative, and conceptual work. They just don't work very well. The evidence is pretty incontrovertible about that. And so um, that's basically what that book is about. If-then rewards are great for simple and short-term, not so great for complex and long-term. You don't have to read that book now. (laughs) You should buy it, but you don't need to read it. Um, And so in response to that, people said, well, what about sales? Isn't sales commissions the classic kind of if-then reward? If 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 you sell something, then you get paid. If you don't sell something, then you don't get paid. And I heard from a guy uh, in Cambridge, a guy named Neil Davidson, who runs a software company named Redgate, called Redgate Software, called Redgate Software. And, and he said, wow, this book is really interesting because it helped explain something, why something that I did worked. He said, we at my company eliminated commissions for our sales force, and we saw sales go up. Oh, it's kind of peculiar. And that sort of peculiar finding from a, a guy in Cambridge got me interested in this topic of sales. So I want to tell you a little bit about what I found on sales, but then use that to get us into this topic of buoyancy, because it's really, really interesting, because it tells us a lot about ourselves. So let's talk about sales. This country has a lot of salespeople. You've got one out of nine people, one out of ten people in this country who work in sales. Their job is to get people to buy stuff. Cell phones, cars, consulting services, cosmetics. That's a lot of people, one in 10. But I don't even think it's the biggest story because I think if you look at what these people do over here, these nine in 10, I think they're in sales too. I think a huge portion of what they do, a huge portion of what you do is sales. It's kind of sort of like sales. Now, this is a hunch that I had that, all, that, that these people who aren't in sales are really in sales. And if you're experienced enough as a writer, and you, you can make a claim and you can go out and find the evidence and anecdotes to support that claim. It's not that hard, okay? And I said, I don't want to do that this time. No, no, I said, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to do that. What I want to do is put some quantitative flesh on the bones here. So what I did is in, in this book that, um, about sales, which is ultimately a book about human nature, is went out to the, to, did a big survey of American workers, 7,000 adult full-time workers in America, composition of the workforce to match the composition of the U.S. workforce, which is very similar to the composition of the U.K. workforce, and I asked them a bunch of questions, including this one right here. What percentage of your work involves convincing or persuading people to give up something they value, attention, effort, money, time, etc., for something you can offer? That's kind of sort of like sales. What percentage of your time 
involves convincing or persuading people to give up something they value for something that you can offer, right? It's an exchange. I'm giving you this, you're giving me that, we're making an exchange. It's a different kind of exchange. But to me, it smells a lot like sales. So 7,000 people later, we found that the average percent was 41%. People spending 41% of their time on the job persuading, influencing, convincing people. Now, this is sales with a twist. Kind of, sort of like sales. It's sales with a twist. It's a transaction. You're, we're making an exchange. You're giving me something. I'm giving you something in return. We're trying to, I'm trying to convince you to make this exchange, but cash register's not ringing, money's not changing hands, and it's not denominated in dollars or pounds or euros. It's denominated in time, effort, attention, energy, zeal, those kinds of things. 40% of our time on the job is a lot of time. 24 minutes of every hour. 24 minutes of the next hour. 24 minutes of the next hour in this enterprise that I call non-sales selling. Now, so then I went back to the spreadsheet and crunched these numbers using my background in econometric analysis and fashioned this complex pie graph. <laughs> Which tells us we got one in ten people in this world. And it was, it was so interesting. It, what's so interesting about the percentage of people in sales is that it's very consistent across, across, across advanced economies. So Japan, Australia, U.S., I mean, they all hover around the same, you know, one in nine, one in ten. So you look at this, we got one in ten people in traditional sales and one in ten people in non-sales selling. Add those up, one-ninth plus nine-ninth, one-ninth plus, uh, I'm sorry, one, what is it? Um, <laughs> what it means is this. Like it or not, we're all in sales, right? Like it or not, we're all in sales. Now, I think this is a big deal. Like it or not, we're all in sales. No matter what we do for a living, like it or not, we're in sales. And most of us don't like it, right? You're nodding your head. Why don't you like it? I love it. Oh, no, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> I was talking to you. Uh, because it uh, means trying to convince somebody. It's trying to, and what's uncom- what, what, what don't you like about that? Trying to convince somebody. What, what don't you like about that? Uh, Sometimes it feels like I may have to be. You have to be. Might have. I may have to be manipulative. You might have to be manipulative. Okay, right, right, right. You have to be kind of a certain kind of person, all right, and deploy certain kind. Yeah, exactly, a salesperson. Right, that's the kind of person. Yes, a salesperson. All right. Well, that's that's a great. Tell me your first name. Silvana. Silvana. Okay, Silvana has tapped into something very, very important here. Very, very important, Silvana's insight here. So let's, get the, let's, let's quantify this a little bit, because it's going to take us into human nature here in a moment. Another question I asked in the survey was this. When you think of sales or selling, what's the first word that comes to mind? Now, the reason I ask this question this way is to get at people's visceral responses. You can ask them a question where they have to rate themselves on a scale or whatever, but this gives you people's immediate visceral responses. So I don't, why don't we hear somebody on this side? What's the first word that comes to mind? Cheap. Aggressive. Cheap. Okay, good. Stockbroker, all right. What about, what about over here? Intelligence. Intelligence, okay. We have at least one salesperson in the audience. Confidence. Huh? Confidence. Confidence. We have two. Uh, <laughs> Who, anybody, how about over here? Pounding. Pounding? Pounding. Pounding. Hounding. Nice one. Pressure. Pressure. Annoying. Annoying. Okay. Very good. So this is an interesting way to gauge people's sentiment. And so, um, um, so we asked this question to 7,000 adult full-time workers in the U.S. Again, the sentiment, the sentiment is so similar on both sides of the Atlantic. And then what I did is I took out the nouns. I got, basically I got a list of seven, I mean a text file of 7,000 words, literally. Text file, 7,000 words. And, 
And I started sorting through them. And I ended up taking out the nouns, things like persuasion and marketing. They're very interesting answers. And focusing on the adjectives, because adjectives give us a sense of what our people's opinion is, what their emotion is about it, what their, what their stand is on it. And then I took the top 25 adjectives. And, and this was exciting for me, this next step. And it might be a moment of history at the Royal Institution, what we're about to witness here. I think it might be. I took those 25 adjectives and I fashioned them into a word cloud. (laughs) Obviously far more exciting to me than to you. But I think this might be the first word cloud ever shown at the Royal Institution. So let's take a look at what people answer. The top 25 adjectives. Very briefly, 20 of them are negative. Five of them are positive, so a four-to-one ratio of negative to positive sentiment. Look at the words there. Pushy, number one by far. Pushy. Uh, Silvana's word, manipulative, was, um, was represented there. Uh, slimy, sleazy. Uh, there, are some, there are some positive words there. Challenging, necessary. If you go over here, uh, somebody said fun. Isn't, yeah, challenging, necessary, fun. And in itty-bitty letters, essential, important. Um, you even had people... You even had people breaking the linguistic categories and offering interjections. Yuck, ugh, <laughs> ick. Um, that's, this is what we think, and I think it's entirely wrong. I think this is completely, utterly, 100% wrong. It's a relic. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Most of what we know about sales, whether we're pitching ideas, whether we're pitching cars, whatever, comes from a world of information asymmetry, where the seller always had more information than the buyer. When the seller has more information than the buyer... The seller can be manipulative, sleazy, slimy, lowbrow, right? When the seller has a lot more information than the buyer, the buyer doesn't have many choices, the buyer doesn't have a way to talk back, the seller can take the low road if the seller wants to, okay? This is why we have the principle of buyer beware. We have a world, we live in a world, we have the principle of buyer beware because sellers know a lot more, right? You got to be careful. If the seller has a huge information advantage, you don't have many choices or a way to talk back, and this, the seller is slimy, sleazy, cheesy, manipulative, aggressive, hounding. That's a good one. I wish that had made the top 25. Hounding. I might have to mess with the numbers a little bit to get that in there. Um, hounding. Uh, when the, when the seller can be hounding, aggressive, manipulative, deceitful, dishonest, cheesy, sleazy, slimy, smarmy. That's why we have the principle of buyer beware. But here's the thing. Do we live in a world of information asymmetry anymore? Between buyer and seller? Not so much. Not so much. We live in a world of much closer to information parity, right? Where, where buyers can have, as, in many cases, as much information as sellers. You go to buy a car a few years ago, the seller knew a lot more about cars than you ever did, than you ever could. You go to buy a car today, you can know as much about cars, as much about that Ford Fiesta as the person selling you the car. We've gone from a world where buyers have lots, not few choices, not much information, and no way to talk back, to a world where they got lots of information, lots of choices, and all kinds of ways to talk back. That's a very different world. That's a world of seller beware. <laughs> and seller beware is different in kind from buyer beware. It's not different in degree, it's different in kind. It's a different enterprise altogether. So this is sort of a, way, a new way to think about sales. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's a, an accurate way to think about sales, but it raises the question, if this is right, or like all these kinds of things, if it's more right than wrong, um, how do you get better at this? What do you need to know how to do? 
What if, how do you get better at this? If we're all in sales now, but sales isn't what it used to be, how do you get better at this? So what I did is I went to the social science. And what's interesting, when you go to the social science to try to figure this out, you learn about sales, but you learn about who we are as human beings. So what I identified are three qualities that are necessary in this world of seller beware. Three foundational qualities. And I want to talk about one of them in depth here right now. Three foundational qualities. They are the new ABCs. They're, the, they're the basically foundational qualities for how can you effectively persuade, influence, convince, sell people in a world of seller beware. They are the new ABCs. Attunement, buoyancy, and clarity. A, attunement, B, buoyancy, C, clarity. A, attunement, B, buoyancy, C, clarity. Attunement, buoyancy, and clarity. Attunement, buoyancy, and clarity. Attunement. Can you take someone else's perspective? Can you see the world from someone else's point of view rather than your own? Some fascinating research that shows that uh, having a sense of feeling, a sense of power, completely distorts your, your perspective-taking abilities, that you're actually better off, that you become a more acute perspective-taker if you consciously try to reduce your feelings of power. There's some fascinating research showing that attunement, perspective-taking, is not empathy. It's not emotional intelligence. It's actually much more sharp-elbowed, much more analytical, much more cognitive. Um, there's some, also some fascinating research showing that uh, being much more uh, aware of people's uh, gestures, uh, the actual words that they use, can actually enhance your ability to understand where they're coming from. It's a great topic, attunement. We're not going to talk about it tonight. Um, <laughs> clarity is another great topic. We're going to skip the B for a second here. Clarity is another great topic. Here's what I mean by clarity. Uh, you, we live in a world of washing information, so being able to access information doesn't give you any kind of comparative advantage because everybody has the information. It used to be that... that um, that gave any, anybody, a, a, a teacher, a physician, um, any kind of enterprise, they had access to the information that no one else had. That's not true anymore. So what matters more is being able to curate that information, being able to take that information and apply your expertise and say, this part is signal, this part is noise, don't worry about it. Being able to look at that welter of information and detect the meaningful patterns, find out what's important, what's not. Sense-making, make sense of it. The other thing, which is totally interesting as well, is this. We have, in some ways, overweighted W-E-I-G-H-T-E-D, overweighted problem-solving as a skill. Problem-solving as a skill. Problem-solving still matters. Yeah, the teachers are, their teachers are in tears right now. We've overstated how important problem-solving is. Because here's the thing. Especially in sales sales, if your customer, your prospect, knows exactly what its problem is, they can probably find a solution without you. You're not that valuable. When are you valuable? When they don't know what their problem is, when they're wrong about their problem. So the premium has shifted from problem solving to problem finding. Can you identify problems people don't realize that they have? Can you surface latent problems? Can you look down the road, one beat, two beats, three beats? Here's a problem you're going to confront. That's clarity. It's totally interesting. We're not going to talk about it. (laughs) We're going to talk about buoyancy, because that's totally interesting, too. We're going to talk about buoyancy, because I think that of the three... Buoyancy gives us the clearest window into the human soul. So we're going to move from selling to buoyancy, and that's going to take us into human nature. Let's talk about buoyancy here for a second. Anybody in sales sales here? So, okay, you two back there. So tell me what you sell. Okay, so you sell advertising? Okay, both of you sell advertising? Okay, so when you sell advertising, do you ever face rejection? Okay. (laughs) A little of rejection? A lot of rejection. All right, here we go. So I interviewed a salesperson, in, a salesman in the United States, and he had a lovely phrase to... Um, tell me your, both of your first names. Emma. Emma? 
Emma and Hannah. All right, Emma and Hannah, um, who basically described what Emma and Hannah's life can be like. All right, he had a lovely poetic way to describe this. He said that um, the hardest part about being in sales is that every day, he says, you get up and you face an ocean of rejection. (laughs) Not a puddle of rejection, not a pond of rejection, an ocean of rejection. So buoyancy is how do you stay afloat on an ocean of rejection? And the science gives us some really, really interesting clues that I want to tell you about because I think what it, what it tells us is it tells us how to navigate our lives more broadly, and it also tells us what human beings are like and how human beings make progress. So let's talk about buoyancy. How do you stay afloat in that ocean of rejection? If we're all in sales, we're going to get rejected a lot. You're going to pitch an idea in a meeting, and they're going to say no. You're going to try to get your boss to free up resources, and she's going to say no. You're going to try to get a teammate to join your project rather than another one, and he's going to say no. Rejection, 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 rejection. Wave after relentless wave after relentless wave from that ocean of rejection every single day. Good times, right? All right. (laughs) So how do you stay afloat on that ocean of rejection? What I want to do is I want to talk about what the social science tells us about how to do that and divide it into three different sections. What do you do before an encounter? What do you do during an encounter? And what do you do after an encounter? All right? And some really, really interesting science that both confirms some conventional wisdom, but also completely overturns it. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about what you do before an encounter. When you go into, say, a, a sales call or anything significant, to pitch an idea at a meeting, to ask somebody out on a date, we all engage in self-talk. Human beings engage in self-talk. We talk to ourselves. We narrate. We, we discuss things with ourselves. Okay? It's not weird. It's what we do. Okay? All, all of you are probably, your self-talk right now is, why is he belaboring this obvious point? Um, what should your self-talk be like before you go into an important encounter? Difficult encounter. Important encounter. High stakes encounter. What should it be like? Positive? Negative? Positive. Right. What, 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 what might it sound like? Yeah, building up, building up your confidence. Oftentimes what we would do is, is, we, is we say to ourselves, our self-talkers, you can do this, right? You can do this. Positive, affirmative, declarative. You can do this. You can do this. You got this. Now sometimes we, some of us have, um, there's a sort of a hyper-masculinized, hyper, admittedly hyper-American way of self-talk. <laughs> of hyper-masculine and hyper-American together. Dangerous combination leads to all kinds of wars and things. Um, <laughs> but that self-talk is, is, is like, you know, you can, it sort of goes from you can do this to you got this to you're, you're all over this, you're an animal, you're a killer, you're, you know, that sort of stuff. But it's very, it's very positive, very positive and affirmative. You're pumping yourself up, right? You're pumping yourself up, right? That's the way that it, that's the way that it should do it. Paul McKenna would tell us to do this, right? Pump yourself up. That's the way it works. And you know what? That's not quite right. What the research shows is something else, a little bit different. Instead of saying, you can do this, you're better off doing this. Can you do this? Now, this freaks out a lot of the self-help gurus because you're letting in some shafts of doubt into the room. What? 
You're questioning your abilities? Well, it turns out that this is right. Some very interesting experiments conducted by a woman named Dolores Albaracin. She's, Amer- she's an American who um, uh, is at the, was at the University of, uh, did the research at the University of Illinois in the U.S. And what she found is that um, that's, um, this is far more effective as self-talk. What she calls interrogative self-talk. That inter- before an encounter to remain buoyant, interrogative self-talk is far more effective than declarative self-talk. Why? Let's take a look at it. Let's, th- let's say that I'm going into a, an important, we'll use me as the cadaver here again. I'm going into an important encounter. I'm going to go, um, what am I going to do? What's an important encounter? What is it? Job interview. I'm going to go to a job interview. Excellent. I'm going to go to. I'm going to go into a job interview. All right. And so I want to be. I want to be persuasive in that job interview. And so I go into the job interview and I say to myself, Dan, you can do this. You got this. You can do this. You're an animal. No, you can do this. All right. You can do this. Very positive and affirmative. And you know what? That's better than not doing anything. There's no question about that. That's better than not doing anything. Why? Why is it modestly effective? Because. Um, I like telling myself that I'm awesome, okay? I love hearing from myself that I'm awesome, all right? And so I feel it actually changes my affect, gives me a little bit of a boost, all right? But it's not as good as the alternative. If I say to myself, Dan, can you do this? This is what this research shows very clearly. If I say to myself, can you do this, why? Because here's the key point here, that questions by their very nature elicit an active response whether you're talking to somebody else or even whether you're talking to yourself. This is really, really important, that questions by their very nature elicit an active response. So when you ask somebody a question, when you ask yourself a question, even if it's not explicit, even if it's not out loud, you kind of sort of answer it. So if I say to myself before my job interview, tell me your first name. Janelle. Janelle. If I say to myself before my job interview with Janelle, Dan, can you do this? I say, yeah, I can do this. I've been on job interviews before. Yeah, I can do this. You know, I actually have researched Janelle's company uh, deeply, and I've got to make sure that I demonstrate that in this interview by mentioning the X and Y, these, these two things. Can I do this? Yeah. There's one thing on my resume that's a little bit dicey, and I know that Janelle's going to ask me that question, and I, gotta make, and I have a good answer to it. I've got to make sure that I make that, I, that I make that answer really well. Sometimes when I go into job interviews, I get a little nervous and talk too fast, since I know that, I've got to consciously try to slow down so I don't appear too frenetic. What am I doing there? I'm preparing. I'm rehearsing. And so this thing, you can do it, which sounds you know, nominally powerful, right? Not, it sounds, I mean, superficially, it sounds strong. You can do it, right? It sounds strong, but it's less strong, it's less muscular than asking yourself the question. That declarative self-talk is less muscular than interrogative self-talk because you start preparing. You start rehearsing. There's a muscularity there because you're getting ready. It's not just simply this warm bath of affirmation. It is preparation, rehearsal, getting ready. So interrogative self-talk trumps declarative self-talk if you want to remain buoyant. Now, it turns out, to my mind, the best exemplar of this principle of interrogative self-talk is British. Okay? It sort of makes sense. You think sort of the American bias would be toward you can do it, and, and um, the British bias would be in the opposite, would be in a different direction. Not, there's, maybe the opposite direction. There's no way I can do this. Um, but it turns out that the, the, the paragon of interrogative self-talk is, is a Brit. 
Um, and to me, one of the, the finest British leaders since Winston Churchill. <laughs> Bob the Builder. For those of you without toddlers, let me give you a dossier. Bob the Builder is an incredibly successful television series about a guy who's a builder named Bob. He has a suite of talking um, uh, trucks and machines who help him solve problems. But when Bob tries to rally his team and rally himself, he doesn't say, you got this, you're an animal, Bob. Um, you know, despite having only four fingers, you're awesome. Um, he says to himself, he says to his team, Can't, he does an interrogative. What does he say? Can we fix it? Exactly. Very good class. Can we? F- this is probably the first time Bob the Builder has ever gotten a name check at the Royal Institution. <laughs> he says, can we fix it? It's interrogative self-talk. Can we fix it? Now, ultimately, they say, yes, we can. But first, they come up with a strategy for doing it. So point number one, before an encounter to remain buoyant, interrogative self-talk beats positive declarative self-talk. Let's go to the next one. Let's talk about during. What do you do during an encounter? This is pretty interesting. How do you do during an encounter, whether it's a sales encounter or any other kind of encounter there? Some really, really interesting research on this. There's a, a woman named Shirley Koppelman at the University of Michigan who did a really interesting study that, that basically went like this. Um, she, had, she organized her participants into three different groups, and they were negotiating um, uh, the details of uh, w- renting a hall for a wedding. And the, she... And, she organized these people into three different groups, and they were going to go in and do the final deal with the person who was renting the hall. Okay? This is a simulated negotiation, and the person who was renting the hall was an actor. And what it was is that they had, they had originally reached the general terms of the deal, but in this next encounter, they were going to learn that the circumstances had changed, that the price had gone up significantly, and that they needed an answer right now. Okay? So which is annoying, right? I mean, but it happens in real life all the time. So the only difference in the three groups was, was the affect of the person delivering the news. In, third, in one of the cases, the affect was neutral. Here's the facts. This is what's going on. Sorry, we got circumstances changed. The price went up. We have someone ready to sign right now. Take it or leave it. In one case, the affect was negative antagonistic, short, curt, sour. Other one, the affect was positive. Friendly, open, generous. Facts are all the same. Did the person's affect affect the deal? Significantly. The person, people who encountered someone with a positive affect were twice as likely to say, okay, that's fine, I can deal with this. I'll do the deal anyway. The facts are exactly the same, but the affect had a big effect. Positivity. Now, positivity is one of those things that makes my eyes roll, right? I just want to just run from the room when I even hear that word. All right? It seems completely, it seems kind of empty, light, kind of goofy, and, and lot. But you know what? The evidence is there. The evidence is there. There's a woman named Barbara Fredrickson who's at the University of North Carolina who's done some really astonishing research here. We can talk about positive emotions and negative emotions. Let's talk about some positive emotions. Amusement. Gratitude. Awe, hope, passion, interest, contentment, okay? Joy. Our lives have positive emotions. Our lives also have negative emotions, right? Negative emotions like anger, disgust, contempt, embarrassment, 
fear, guilt, sadness, shame. As a writer, to me, when I, when I see this list, I always think, God, negative emotions are so much more interesting. Um, so we all, we have, our, our lives are a mix of this. So what she wanted to find out is, what's the right mix? What's the right mix? We all have positive emotions and negative emotions have different, have different uh, functions. We need them both. Right? What does positive emotions do? She says positive emotions broaden people's actions, ideas about possible actions, opening our awareness to a wider range of thoughts and making us more receptive and creative. Right? Positive emotions open us up. What do negative emotions do? They narrow us. Negative emotions are incredibly important in many different realms. Negative emotions tell us, warn us that something's going awry. Negative emotions will warn us, get out of that burning building. Get out of that bad relationship. Get out of that crappy job. Negative emotions say, wait a second, there's something wrong here. I need to fix it. So they both serve a very powerful purpose. But what's the right mix? Or is there a right mix? So what she did, she did this incredible piece of research with a guy named Marcel Losada, who's a Brazilian um, mathematician. And the math on this is unbelievably complex. And, and what she did is she, she looked at, she had people record their positive emotions and their negative emotions over the, course of a, over the course of a very long time, right? When am I experiencing joy? When am I experiencing resentment? When am I experiencing contentment? When am I experiencing shame? Okay? People were consciously cataloging their emotions, their positive and their negative emotions. Now, see if you can guess what happened. How were people doing when their negative, when their negative emotions were greater than their positive emotions. People feeling good and, and effective? No, not that surprising. What about when it was one-to-one? One positive emotion for one negative emotion. Not much different from having more negative than positives. That's pretty interesting, right? It gets a little more interesting. What happens to people's effect in this, their sense of well-being, when they have two positive emotions for every one negative emotion, a two-to-one ratio, positive to negative. How are people doing? Not any better. Pretty interesting, right? Pretty alarming for certain Brits, right? <laughs> if, you have, if you have a one-to-two ratio of negative to positive emotions, you're not doing any better than someone who has predominantly negative emotions. It's kind of interesting, right? What she found is that there was a tipping point. There was a tipping point in the ratio of, neg- of positive emotions to negative emotions. That tipping point occurred at... 2.9013. That's, I mean, this is a very sophisticated math that Losada did in this paper. It's a very interesting paper if you want to Google it. Um, so because most of us don't need to go to the fourth decimal point, they rounded it up to three to one. And what she found is that effectiveness and flourishing occur when positive emotions outnumber negative emotions by three to one. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's pretty positive, right? That's more positive than a lot of us are comfortable with. I mean, I'm, I say that, I, I mean, let's, let's not put it out there. Let's, that, that's, more, that's more positive than I'm used to. All right? This changed my view of things. It's, and, and the research on this is pretty clear, that when positive emotions outnumber negative emotions by three to one, people are more, people flourish in their sense of subjective well-being. People are able to bounce back from rejection. People are more effective in their encounters at work and at home. Three to one. Now, there's a ceiling on this. There's a ceiling on this. Okay, we, let's, I'm glad there's a ceiling on it, right? But you know what? It's, a, it's actually an incredibly high ceiling. It's 11 to 1. I know, isn't that amazing? If you go beyond 11 to 1 in your ratio of positive to negative emotions, you're in la-la land, right? So, <laughs> so. 
And so this actually gives us some, this gives us some hints about what to do here. We have this notion that in sales or in, especially in negotiations that we want to be very poker-faced. Go and put, uh, poker-faced, neutral, right? Maybe a little stern. And you know what? That's the wrong way to do it. You're more likely to get a deal if you're a little bit positive. I know, it hurts a little, doesn't it? I mean, it does. It's sort of, this, this, I mean, again, it's sort of, this is the one, the first one beforehand sort of overturns a lot of like the conventional wisdom of, you know, from some self-help book. This one actually affirms it. This one or affirms it a little bit within, within, within reason. Um, but it's very, very, it's very, very interesting. And there's certain kinds of practices that people can do to, to, to raise the salience of their positive emotions. Um, there's some fascinating research now out of Stanford on, on the importance of awe. How awe, stopping and experiencing feelings of awe can make us feel like we have more time and make us feel like we have more, we're more effective. Um, there's a, a huge amount of research on gratitude, for instance, that if you stop at the end of the day and write down three things that you're grateful for, you're going to have higher level of well-being, higher level of effectiveness. So that's what goes on during. Let's talk about after. Some fascinating research here, too. What do you do after an encounter? All right. What do you do? Let's, let's talk to Emma and Hannah up, up, up there. What do you do after an encounter when you get rejected? Soldier on? What do you thank them? <laughs> okay. What, t- I mean, did you, do you have any kind of practices? On to the next. So does it bother you? You get used to it. You get used to it. Oh, every no is a step to the next yes. All right. There you go. I saw that episode of Bob the Builder. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Well, this is, it's, it's interesting because all of us deal with rejection, but most of us, I mean, you guys are used to dealing with rejection, and I think you probably learned implicitly some habits of the heart about ways to, to contend with it. It's sort of, you, you, you let it roll out. But it turns out there's something a little bit more affirmative that, that people can do, and here's, here's the interesting thing. So Martin Seligman, who's at the University of Pennsylvania, did some fascinating research a few years, a few years ago where he went to, he wanted to study well, let me tell you the course. He started studying learned helplessness. He made his name studying learned helplessness, this idea that sometimes people feel helpless even though they have efficacy over their environment, but they basically learned to be helpless. And he said if people can learn to be helpless, maybe they can learn to be optimistic. And he started doing some research there, and then he st- that took him to studying rejection. And the way that he studied rejection, he said, I want to study rejection, so he immediately sought out an army of life insurance salesmen. Um, in the American state of Pennsylvania. And he spent a huge amount of time with these life insurance salesmen. And they're almost all men, actually. And, and here's, what he, here's what he found out. The best predictor of their success as life insurance salesmen was, if you see here, their explanatory style. It was how they explained failure. And I'm guessing, based on some of your comments, that you guys might do this implicitly and not necessarily realize what you're doing. Their explanatory style, how they explained failure. The best predictor of their success was how they explained failure. Very interesting. And what he found is that he basically, in some ways, found an algorithm for how to do this effectively. And what he found is that people who are buoyant, people who soldier on, people who are able to go to that next encounter, who say, and you're lovely, um, uh, um, Emma's lovely phrase, what was it, every no is a step to a yes. People who, people who go on in that way uh, have a certain way of explaining things. And it's three different dimensions. So first, they, he talks about the three Ps. 
personal, pervasive, and permanent. So one thing that you can do, as he, as he says, is that this is, this is actually a piece of social science that yields some really practical clues. And it's, and it's things that we can use with our kids. It's things that we can use in our relationships. It's things that we can use in a wider spectrum of things than simply sales. So first question is, is it permanent? Is this permanent? Okay. If you go in and get rejected, you ask somebody out on a date? No. Is this permanent? You go to a sales call and they say no? Is this permanent? You go and pitch a book idea to a publisher and they say no? Is this permanent? You can say, yes, I've completely lost my skill for selling. All right? <laughs> you can say that. You can say, is this per- yeah, I've, I've lost it. I don't, I don't have it anymore. Or you can say, no, I was flat today because I didn't get enough sleep. You go into a sales call, you get, you get a no, you can say, you know what, I've completely lost it, I'm no good at this. Is this permanent? Or is this temporary? You're better off explaining things in a hard-headed way. Okay, you can't be delusional, but look for ways that the explanation is temporary rather than permanent. Go to the next P. Is this pervasive? Is this pervasive? You go into a sale, Emma and, and uh, Hannah go into a sales call. Is this pervasive? They said no again to my advertising. So they say, yes, every prospect I visit is clueless and uninterested. (laughs) Always happens, right? Or you can go in and say, but people, here's the thing. I mean, some of you are laughing because you know that we do this, all right? And we're going to come to that in a second. Yes, every prospect I visit is clueless and interested. Or you can say, is this pervasive? No, this particular guy was a dope. Okay? Explaining things as specific rather than universal. Specific rather than universal. Temporary rather than permanent. Specific rather than universal. Let's talk about this. Is this personal? Is this personal? Okay? You're, uh, even, Hannah's already in this. Hannah's shaking her head. No. Is this personal? It's not. You can say, is this personal? Yes. The reason the, 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 he didn't buy is that I messed up my presentation. Hannah's saying, no, that's not the reason. Here's the reason, right, Hannah? No, my presentation could have been better, but the real reason he passed is the guy wasn't ready to buy right now. All right? Is this personal? No. So the more, and what he found is that, and it's, it's, actually, it's actually quite remarkable, is that more than the industry assessment, the, the standard industry assessment that they use to measure insurance salesmen, insurance salespeople, that this capacity, do people exp- how people explain their failure, let me go over it again. Do you explain your failure as temporary rather than permanent? Specific rather than universal, and external rather than personal. That that leads to buoyancy. That leads to flourishing. Now, I want to say one couple quick words here before I wrap up. This is not self-delusion. All right. What's really important. It goes back to the things about uh, uh, interrogative self-talk. Is that this has to be very analytical. Okay. So maybe Hannah messed up her presentation, but maybe that wasn't the only reason that. This guy didn't buy. Maybe this has been happening a lot, but it doesn't always happen in every circumstance. So you have to be, you have to go back and this is the word that they use. It's a wonderful word. A lot of people, a lot of us, when we get in situations, because we hate rejection so much, we hate rejection so much, we, have, we shy away from it, and when we get it, we say, this always happens, it's all my fault, and it's going to ruin everything. It always happens, pervasive. It's all my fault, personal. It's going to ruin everything permanent. And if you can learn the techniques that these scholars call of decatastrophizing things, decatastrophizing things, that's their word, not mine, decatastrophizing things, explain things in that way that I mentioned as temporary rather than permanent, specific rather than universal, external rather than personal, but with sharp, 
accurate, logical, sharp-edged explanations. This is what Seligman calls this, and this is, I think, the guiding principle, and I think that sales teaches us this. The way to be effective in sales is the way to be effective as a human being. The way that human beings make progress, and Seligman has a lovely phrase here for this. He calls it optimism with its eyes open. That's what it takes. That's what we should be. All of us should be optimists with our eyes open. Not optimists who are closed off, you know, Panglossy and clueless, in a sort of a fever of Panglossy and cluelessness, you know, not seeing any kind of negative there. Optimism with its eyes open. Now, I know this makes some of us uncomfortable, that optimism with its eyes open is the key to flourishing. So if that's, if that's you, I'll give you another technique here. There's also some evidence showing the benefits of defensive pessimism. But basically, before you go into an encounter, absolutely imagine the worst-case scenario. Talk about how bad it's going to be. Think, about, think through every horrible, wretched, horrendous thing that can happen. And you know what? That ends up decatastrophizing things. That ends up decatastrophizing things. I have a hint for you here, and we'll end on this in a moment. If you want this, there is some interesting... I want to, for, for those of you who find this appealing, I'll give you a really interesting thing. Go to this website right here. All right? Just, if you put into, put into Google... Re, the Rejection Generator Project. Enter your email... Enter the, the capture code, and you can send yourself a rejection letter. <laughs> and in fact, one of the techniques, one of the interesting techniques of de- check it out, it's cool. One of the techniques of decatastrophizing is this: is let's suppose that you're applying for a fellowship, you're applying for something, is in advance of it, write your, I mean, forget it, you can do it automatically if you're lazy, but write yourself a rejection letter. Write yourself, dear Daniel, we regret to inform you that you've been denied this fellowship. We had many wonderful applications, all right? Use the annoying language of that. And what you do when you write yourself a rejection letter is, is a couple of things. Number one, you decatastrophize it. Number two, you actually begin to surface some reasons why you might get rejected, which allows you to address them, address them. So let me just end on this. Here's the thing. Let's talk about, let's talk about, let's talk about human nature how do we flourish as human beings? Sales gives us a way to understand that. Sales is an ocean of rejection. The people who make it in sales stay afloat. They're buoyant on that ocean of rejection. And buoyancy is the metaphor. I think it's a lovely metaphor for understanding what it takes to be a flourishing, loving human being. It's a mix of levity and gravity in the proper balance. Too much levity you float off into the ether. Too much gravity, you, abs- you just sink. But when you get the mix right, the right balance of levity and gravity, you're buoyant. So what sales teaches us is in some ways how to flourish as parents, as spouses, as citizens. Buoyant optimists with our eyes open. Would this work for code callers? <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about code callers. So let me, end, let me end on that. We'll take some questions. Thank you. All right, so let's take some questions here. So, so well, raise, your, raise your hand buoyantly, and we'll take some questions. Yes, uh, over, uh, over there on the left hand, on my left. If we're all like this, 
Say that again. What do you think the implications are if we're all like this? All like what? Like taking the, using the approach you recommend here. Um, well, it's, an, it's, actually, it's, actually, it's actually a very interesting question because I think that's actually a really interesting question uh, because I think that what you need is you need societies that are also buoyant, that societies that have the right mix of levity and gravity. And it's possible that the right mix in a, at a societal level is having a bunch of people who are, who are completely floating off into the ether. Um, these are people who are self-deluded entrepreneurs, many of whom are going to fail, but some of whom are going to create the next big thing. Um, and, and also a mix of people who have too much gravity. And maybe it is a, there's sort of, it's a really great question. There's buoyancy at a societal level. Um, now, if we have, and so it's possible to reach societal buoyancy by having the right mix of levity and gravity. You can also get that mix if more of us are, as individuals have that right mix of levity and gravity. But I think there's something to that. There, um, let's talk about, um, let's talk about uh, pr- uh, professions. There's also some fascinating research uh, among, among lawyers, among attorneys, barristers, whatever, w- whatever we want to call them. Um, it's, it's very clear that, that personal well-being um, is affected negatively by pessimism in general. In general. Um, and in many professions, uh, pessimism is actually, um, what would it be? It would be... Um, Pessimism is a predictor of actually not doing well in a profession. Okay, that is, if you're, you're more, if you're an optimistic doctor, you're probably going to be a slightly better doctor. Again, optimist with a, with her eyes open. Uh, the one profession where it's where it's actually pays off big time to be a pessimist is being a lawyer. Um, and so it's actually one. Re- it does because you're always looking for the worst case scenario. You're always saying, "What's this? How is this person going to fleece me? What's the worst thing that can happen here? We got to put this in the contract." Um, and so, and this is one reason why uh, lawyers have as low a level of subjective well-being as any profession there is. <laughs> I mean, this is not a joke. No, this is not a joke. No, it really is because, in some ways, the, the the quality that is that is positively correlated with their success is negatively correlated with their well-being. Um, but it's a great question. I think we need to be buoyant at a societal level too. It's a great question. How about right back? If we can get back up there and over there. Um, just taking two of the tips that you mentioned, one which was sort of optimism with one's eyes open, and the other one is a sort of defensive pessimism. Yeah. Which of these two would you suggest to journalists, and which of these two would you suggest to people who work in PR? Okay, that's an interesting question. Um, Will you highlight the you know, it's a, it's a, shield? Yeah, it's and, another, that's actually a really, really interesting question too, because I think, it, what's your first name? Oh, good name. Um, <laughs> and um, your first name? Fred, Daniel and Fred. I think those questions actually pair together very nicely because I think what you're talking about, I would argue that um, the journal, it's interesting. It's very interesting about journalists. About, I, can, I can argue it either way. I think that defensive pessimism in a journalism, journalist is not necessarily a bad thing um, uh, because you are, you know, you're trying to, um, um, you know, uh, comfort, the, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, you know, and that's, that's what the best journalists do. And so having that kind of defensive pessimism might be a way to do that. On the other hand, the very best journalism, journalists, actually, they won't admit this, are completely starry-eyed optimists. They actually think that what they do matters. They actually think that, <laughs> that, that uncovering something in a, in a government or writing a particular story will actually have an effect on the world. So I can, I can answer it um, either way. I think that for, for uh, public relations... Um, 
um, I think optimism uh, with its optimism with its eyes open. I think that pes- I think public relations is actually really buoyancy is really important in public relations because public relations people are pitching all the time and they're getting rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected. And so buoyancy, I think, absolutely would positively correlate with success in PR. How about over here? Hi, Daniel. <laughs> um, a lot of the points that you made really resonated quite well. But there was one that I can't quite wrap my head around. Talk to me. Okay. So you talk about the perfect ratio of positive to negative being three yeah. to one. Yeah. So you're saying that in order for us to really to be buoyant human beings, we mm-hmm. need to channel that positivity. So where do people need to tap into in those situations to be able to draw that? Okay, it's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, let's go back here for a second, okay? Let's go back here for a second. Some of it is actually being, um, you know, so much of like, so much of, of, of um, sort of effectiveness at, uh, at a personal or professional level, to me, often comes down to, oh, got him again, uh, often comes down to um, awareness. And so what I think is being more conscious of these kinds of positive emotions. So... I mentioned uh, gratitude. There is there's probably no better, cheaper um, personal development technique that you could use do than taking a few minutes at the end of every day and thinking about three things you're grateful for. All right, so it's bringing that to to your awareness. If you're experiencing joy in the course of a day, stop and I mean Seligman, Martin Seligman talks about this all the time. Talks about the importance of savoring. If you have a moment of joy because something delighted you that you saw or your child said something, or the person you love said something that you didn't expect, positive, that you didn't expect. Um, um, you know, stop and savor that feeling of, of joy. If you have a moment after a meal where you're feeling, this idea, Sally, Martin Solomon at Penn has written a lot about the importance of savoring, because a lot of times we're not conscious of what we're doing. So if you have a, a lovely meal with someone you care about, at the end of the meal and you're feeling content, stop. Think about it. Savor that. And what what that will do is that will actually allow you to be more conscious of some of these positive emotions. That's going to increase your effectiveness and increase your and increase your your happiness. And I think that in many cases we're hyper. We we tend to be slightly more aware of our negative emotions. We're very conscious when we're feeling embarrassed. We're very conscious when we're feeling angry. And these positive emotions end up we end up not taking them seriously enough and not being conscious of them enough. So um, again, and so this is um, there's interesting. There's uh, if you put it. Um, you can go online. Barbara Fredrickson, who's done this research at the University of North Carolina in the U.S., uh, she has a, um, shoot, I don't have the URL, but if you just Google um, um, Barbara Fredrickson positivity ratio, it's also in this book if you want to pick up a copy of that. Um, because um, um, it, would, it would lead to, I think, interest, joy, and amusement. Um, which would give you three right there. Um, no, um, uh, just yeah, put, it into, put it into Google. Uh, she has a, a really interesting um, charting mechanism that you can use to sort of see how you're doing on this front. And I think what happens in a lot of cases is that people are, are actually surprised that they actually are feeling some positive emotions. They just weren't really looking for them. Uh, how about, well, let's go over to this side. Hi. I uh, like your three Ps on coping with rejection. But where would you draw the line between buoyancy and denial? Yeah. 
It's, no, it's a great, it's a great question. No, it's a great question because I mean, again, that's what, there's a reason that there's a reason that, as I said at the end, that to use the metaphor of buoyancy because it's a combination of levity and gravity. Okay, so um, levity without gravity is uh, denial, self-delusion. Uh, but on the other hand, gravity without levity is also its own form of, I think, an inaccurate explanation and assessment of the world. Um, that is, and I think the combination of it gives you greater accuracy, and it gives you, I think, the key to to, to flourishing. This is there's there's uh, if you look at say the, go to the three P's for a second. Um, if sometimes things are personal, all right. Sometimes you did mess something up, but it's probably not the only explanation for why something went wrong. But you need to acknowledge that it's partly personal, all right? And so is it entirely personal? No, most things are not entirely personal because if you're, de- if you're dealing with an interaction with somebody else. So I think you make a very, very good point about not letting it tip into denial, but this is why, this is what buoyancy is. It's, as Seligman says, optimism with its eyes open. It is, it is the proper amount of levity moderated by some amount of gravity. Yes? And if you guys want to talk about the other aspects, uh, 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 attunement and clarity, too, if you're interested, I'm happy to take questions about that, too, if that makes you more buoyant. I've got um, two questions, but I think they're linked. The first is okay. whether, whether you think that you're born with buoyancy, i.e., um, there's been a lot of research telling when stuff about learning happiness, learning positive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether, whether someone is born Great question. more buoyant than the other. And the second one is whether... I suppose positive psychology is this new big thing and everyone's talking about right. it and writing about it. But what you think that will do to the culture of therapy, whether we're coming out of a culture of therapy and into a culture of positive psychology? Yeah, um, it's a, okay, the, se- the second question is a fascinating question. I'm not sure on that one. I think it's a fascinating, I think it's a fascinating question. Um, I think that in some cases, we, when you talk about therapy for, say, mental illness, that, that sort of thing, um, I think in, in some ways we have, we have over therapeutic therapized things that we basically take every sort of discomfort as as something that is actually an ailment and have to apply therapy to it on the other hand i think one of the great advances advances that didn't exist when people had cadavers in this room and were studying the biological sciences is that when someone is feeling down when someone is feeling blue when someone is feeling anxious when someone is feeling nervous it's partly because of the biochemistry of their brain it's not a character weakness. It's part of who they are at the level of biology, and we have all kinds of mechanisms to address that. So, in some ways, it's in some ways I'm kind of in, in some ways it's it's uh, it's mixed. What I do think is that um, that people understanding the secrets to flourishing in the deeper sense is itself a form of of um, self-efficacy, and I don't want to call it self-therapy, but a form of self-efficacy that might actually keep people out of the therapist's office, which is, I mean, unless you're a therapist, is a good thing. Um, now, the first part of your question was, forgive me, I forgot your, your first question. Oh, okay, so, so I mean, you probably know this. Uh, there's, there's actually some interesting evidence. It's uh, David Lykken, L-Y-K-K-E-N, at, uh, I think he's at the University of Minnesota, and he has, I think that's who it is, um, and there's this notion of, this is more about happiness rather than sales or buoyancy, but, but I think it's relevant is that people are born with what he calls a happiness set point. A happiness set point. That's the term of art here. And so what it means is this, that you have um, um, sort of innately, because of your DNA, a range of happiness levels. Okay, So let's say that it goes from 0 to 100. I'm, I'm sort of overly simplifying things. Let's say it goes from 0 to 100. 
and your band of happiness is is goes your band of happiness goes from say um, uh, uh, eighty five to sixty. Okay, so if your life is just miserable and everything goes wrong, you might be down at sixty. And if things are good and you have the right kinds of behaviors and so forth, you might be up at eighty five. But because of who you are, you're probably not going to be too far down there. Um, let's say that other people have a lower happiness set point. Let's say it's between 30 and 50. And so you're never going to be Mr. Smiley in that kind of situation. That, but, but what you can do is you can do, learn certain kinds of practices, learn kinds of techniques to get to the highest level of your range. And so that person is going to be a much more effective person, much more effective worker, much more effective spouse, much more effective parent if he or she is up at the 50 part of his um, range rather than the 30 part of his range but i mean there are you know there are there are limits of this and in some ways to me that notion of the happiness set points underscores the urgency of our doing these things particularly if our set point is i'm convinced my set point is somewhere between 35 and 55 okay so basically chronic dissatisfaction um, <laughs> if if left to my own devices but knowing this and knowing more about myself can push me up more toward the, you know, the, the 55 range. Uh, yeah, we got a lot. Okay, so um, we'll go there and then there and then there and then there. We'll go right to left. This, this gentleman in the back and then you. Okay, well, we'll do it that order too. My, my name's Peter. Uh, I just make quite a good living out of something that might interest you is that yeah. if you uh, look at the Chinese symbol for crisis, there are two symbols. And if you split them into two, it means dangerous opportunity. Right. And I thought that was quite an interesting motto. Uh, sure, and I think there is that kind of, I mean, just to build on the Chinese of it, I think that a lot of things have this kind of yin-yang tension, that you want a kind of combination, you want a combination of things. And, and what's so interesting now is that we have these intuitions about certain combinations of these, these sorts of things. But, we, but there are social scientists out there doing experiments to help us figure out, okay, what are, the, what are the right ingredients there? And allow us to crack the code just a little bit more carefully. Hi. Uh, is it as easy to find buoyancy when you come out of a competitive environment? So, for example, you're in a pitch against other people that are in the same field as you. Yeah. And you lose, but you're ignorant as to what they've done that's better than you. Yeah. That's a really good question, and I think it's I think it's going to be harder because you have less. I mean, to me, that's not so much a buoyancy problem. It's basically, I mean, it's essentially a feedback problem. And I think that the workplace is awash in feedback problems. I think that people don't have a good enough sense of, of how they're doing. There's some fascinating. We'll sort of switch gears here just a little bit. Um, there is probably, to me, to my mind, the most important research in the field of talent in the last ten years was done by Teresa Mabile at Harvard Business School. And what she did is that she had. Uh, she went to people um, across the North American workforce, something like eight or nine firms, several hundred people, and she had them, at the end of every day, say, how was your day? What were the high points? What were the low points? Were you motivated or not? So these people basically did these little mini, they sent an email back describing what was good or bad about their day. And what she found when she crunched all these numbers, and she basically came up with 12,000 daily diary entries of people's day-to-day experience on the job. And what she found is that when people were most people were most satisfied, people were most motivated when, and this is her phrase, they were making progress in meaningful work, making progress in meaningful work. That she found that people making progress is the key to satisfaction at work. The problem is that progress depends on feedback. 
Okay? So you could, by getting rejected in that pitch, have made some progress by saying, oh, no, they wanted this rather than that. Oh, they went with a much heavier mix of digital rather than TV. Oh, great, I learned something, I can get better at it next time. So being in that vacuum of feedback actually can actually demotivate people. There's no question about that. And, but I think that the crisis of feed, the problem with feedback is even, is even wider. Particularly, I don't know, how, how old are you? 32. Okay, so I think about your, tell me your first name. Kane. Kane? Uh, so you think about somebody, so Kane, that means 32, you were born in... Um, 81? Yeah, 81. Okay, that's right. 80. 80, okay. No, I was just thinking, I got this tie in 83. Um, but you look, at, you, look at, you look at your life as someone who's, you look at someone, your life as someone who's in is, you know, your early 30s, and your life, so much of your life, it's not, so much of your life outside of work, is about rich, regular, rapid feedback. You're getting information all the time. You press a button, something happens. You play a game, video game, you get a score. Uh, you send a text, it gets there instantly. You receive a text it, from around the world, it gets to you instantly. So you have this, this life of rich, regular, robust feedback that gives you a sense in your regular life of whether you're making progress or not. And that can actually sustain your motivation. What's interesting is that when we put the canes, then we put the canes of the world into large organizations. They come out of this world of rich, regular, robust feedback and we put them in the world of a large organization, how do we give them feedback? Annual performance review. <laughs> I mean, they come out of this rich world of feedback, and we say, oh, in this alternative universe, you get feedback once a year in an awkward kabuki theater-style conversation with your boss. It's absolutely insane. So, so I think you've hit on something really, really important, which is that, you know, for, I mean, are, you a, a, are you self-employed? Are you an entrepreneur? Are you running your own agency? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that you know, one of the things that's hard for people who are entrepreneurs is that they have to look for ways to get feedback about how they're doing and information about how they're doing. And this is one reason why you see a lot of these kind of entrepreneurial uh, kind of support groups where entrepreneurs will get together, talk about their business, give each other advice. It's a great lesson for you about how to be a better boss and giving your, your employees feedback so they don't feel like, God, I don't know what happened here. It went, it went bad, but I don't know the reason why. Um, so it's a, it's a really, really insightful, meaningful point about how people are effective, particularly at work. Um, yeah, we're going to go down here. How are we doing on time, Hannah? Okay. Oh my gosh! All right, I got all night, so I'm I'm easy. I want to come back to that point about lawyers earlier because you said it's a good predictor if they're negative that they're good at their job, but doesn't that lead to maybe a suboptimization because they might be the best lawyer because they're defensive, but actually for society it's pretty bad. So they set up contracts to be really defensive. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy that they actually become about all the worst-case scenarios. So I work in technology, and it actually the contracts stop a lot of innovation. It's actually a really big problem. Whereas, and one of the big problems is getting lawyers to want to do innovative contracting because it's based on contracts like 100 years ago. So just coming back to that, I think for airline security or safety it would be a good thing. For lawyers, maybe it holds vast industries back through this negativity. I actually agree. I, I totally agree with you. And I say that with, with, with some amount of standing because, I mean, I w- I'm, quote, unquote, trained as a lawyer. I'm a, I'm a law school graduate. And, um, and I never practiced law a day in my life. And one of the reasons was is that the way I looked at it, and I found in my classmates, very smart people, is that they were very good at deconstructing things. 
And so if they saw something that was under construction, a little bit wobbly, their instincts were always were to say, it's weak here. It's going to fall down because of this. Uh, and didn't have the instinct to say, what can we do to make this a little stronger? What can we do to, to build this? And I think it ends up actually, I mean, there's a chance that it actually serves as a break on insanely self-deluded technology entrepreneurs. But I actually think that it ends up actually being gumming up. I, personally, this is my own personal view, I think it actually, certain kinds of these things actually really gum up the gears of, of commerce, even more in the United States. You spoke again, I want to come back to this three-to-one ratio. Yeah. That, and that, in a lot of your talks, seems to be operative at an individual level. I yeah. mean, you made this analogy about the societal level, yeah, yeah. about the, the heterogeneity that you can yeah. have across yeah, exactly. the population. Uh-huh. But in a lot of social discourse within the profession, we see constituencies, and think, think of political processes, and you'll have groups that tend to move emotionally together. Hmm. And have you seen this I mean, I see this a lot. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about how the principles that you, you're describing that I see as operative at an individual level yeah. working in the, the realm of group dynamics Interesting. And, and groups trying to come to some kind of consensus on a direction or what those processes should look like? Yeah, you know what? That's a really, really good question. And, I mean, there's obviously a huge amount of research on teams and team performance and group dynamics and so forth. And, and I just don't know about whether these principles of this... Po- I, don't, I, don't, I don't know whether it's been, it's been tested. My guess is that it's a great question, research question. It's a great research question. My guess would be that effective teams have a certain kind of ratio of positive to negative at the unit of the team. However, it sort of goes to Daniel's question about you know, it, it, whether that team is composed of a bunch of naysayers and a bunch of self-deluded optimists and that, it, that, that balances out, or whether it's a group of a bunch of people who are kind of the, the, the three-to-one group. My hunch, my hypothesis would be that Team performance is is a similar kind of is a is a similar kind of ratio, and I say that that's just a guess. Um, but you know we've all been on teams where teams can basically, if it, if if the negative affect of the total team is greater than the positive affect, nothing gets done. It's a downward. It's a downward. It's a downward spot. It's a great great question. But I my hypo- What would your hypothesis be? I mean, so what's embedded in the question, yeah. What's embedded in the question is I see these teams tend to move together. I mean, kind of the popular, one of the popular snowballs for this is things like groupthink, right? Yeah. Where, where one person can have the whole thing move yeah. together. So it isn't that you have a healthy mix at any given time. It's that the, the whole group does tend to move together. And then the question is, yeah. in that kind of, you know, say a political process where you have two ideologies yeah. that, are, that are trying to get the attention of a corporation or a strategic direction or a technology or something like that, what are the dynamics there, and what can an individual do in that setting? Huh. Can, how can you set up the group in terms of preparation beforehand, yeah. You know, yeah. reasoning in the middle of the situation, and, and the afterthoughts? Do you know of any kind of metaphors that you can take directly from the, the findings you talk about into a group setting? So that's more the concern. Yeah, yeah. On the, poli- the political side, on the political side, I'm not sure because there's so many other confounding variables in a, polit- in a political system. Um, but on the group, on the group, the, one thing that it reminds me of is the work of a guy named Brian Uzi, U double Z I at Northwestern, and he's done a lot of research. You know what I'm talking about? He's done some research on teams. What's the right balance of teams? What's the right balance on a team between people who have worked together or people who are never worked before? And he did this really amazing piece of research looking at um, 
uh, Broadway shows. Which kind of Broadway shows were, 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 were successful? Because Broadway shows, people work together, they disaggregate, they come back, and some of them work together again. What's the right mix? And what he found is that having people who had always worked together do a show wasn't that great. Having people who had, n- had never worked together before wasn't that great. And it was a kind of a mix. And again, I mean, we seem to be, it's a fascinating conversation. I mean, maybe we here at the Royal Institution are coming up with a kind of golden ratio here. Of, but, but, but Brian Uzi has something very similar to this. And basically what he said is that you have to have, it's a mix between people who have worked together before and some people who have never worked together before. And going too far one way or another, the teams, uh, th- these teams stagnate. The team, they, they, they fall into grooves. These teams never cohere. But these teams are both dynamic and, and they, they are able to be dynamic and able to cohere. And there's, I think there's the, 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 the answer is somewhere in the soil down there beneath that. Yes. Um, Emma. You can shout it. Attunement. Okay, so um, sure. Um, attunement. Attunement is perspective taking. Can you take someone else's perspective? Okay? And, and so um, what's really interesting about the research on attunement is, uh, uh, one way that uh, research on attunement is that, as I mentioned before, power uh, ends up corrupting people's um, uh, ability to see another person's perspective. And so if you, um, so what they do is they put people in experimental settings. They have them do a series of, of, of tests and things to measure how well I'm understanding your point of view, how well I'm taking your point of view, and even small primes to make people feel, people feel powerful. Um, small reminders of, wow, you have a lot of people reporting to you, don't you? Oh, you have a lot of big, that's a big budget, you know. The small reminders end up dramatically degrading people's ability to take the other person's perspective. That there's this really kind of, um, um, I I don't want to call it mechanical, but it's this very simple inverse correlation between power and perspective taking. The more power somebody has, in general, the less acute their perspective taking skills are. If you look at high status people in organizations, High-status people in society, they're not very good at taking other people's perspective. You look at low-status people in organizations and society, low-status people are very good at taking other people's perspectives. Why? Why? Why would a low-status person be good at taking another person's perspective? They have to. Exactly. Yeah, these are easy questions here. Yeah, they have to. That's the only way to survive. Right, and so anyway, so let's so let's so this is this is some research by led by a guy named Adam Galinsky, and and um, and it's it's really quite fascinating. But it yields a, per, a particular lesson. Okay, it yields a particular lesson about how we can attune ourselves to others more adroitly, um, and how we don't avoid getting anchored in our own position. So again, reminders of power, feelings of power degrade our capacity for perspective taking. But if we flip that on its head, we have a technique to do things a little bit better. So suppose. God forbid, Emma, I'm your boss, okay? And I want, you to, I want you to do something, you know, you've been selling advertising and I want you to sell something else, all right? Something else, and you're not, you don't know anything about this product, you don't want to do it, you've built relationships with various kinds of, of buyers in the advertising market, you don't want to do this. But I'm your boss. I can say to you, Emma, this is the way it is, go do it. You'll probably do that, won't you? You know, I mean, unless you want to quit your job, but you probably, you know, you probably do that. Now, how would you go about doing it? I'd go and be 
Yeah, but how would you feel about it? Would you feel exhilarated about doing something you don't want to do because of the edict of your boss? Pretty beefed. All right, here we go. Um, I forgot. I have to. Um, I have to recalibrate my American style of <laughs> emotional reaction for here. Um, yeah, you'd be pretty beefed, right? Yeah, you. All right. Peeved. Oh, peeved. Sorry. <laughs> peeved. All right. Pretty peeved. All right. Pretty peeved. I obviously wasn't attuned enough to, when I was listening. You'd be pretty peeved. Yeah, you'd be pretty pissed off, right? You'd be, you'd be pretty aggravated about that. You would do it grudgingly, all right? Now, now so, so the question here is that we're, go, we're going back to attunement. We're going back to power degrading perspective-taking abilities. What I'm better off doing is this. I, go to t- I, I, I want you to take on a new assignment. What I'm better off doing is this. You know what? Even though I'm nominally Emma's boss, even though nominally Emma reports to me, maybe I'm not the most powerful one in this kind of transaction, this kind of relationship. Maybe Emma... Emma's pretty good. Maybe Emma needs us more than we need Emma. Maybe, I mean, maybe Emma needs us. Maybe, maybe, the other way around. Maybe, maybe we need Emma more than, than Emma needs us. Maybe Emma actually has more power here. Maybe my ability to achieve my objective as a boss and please my own boss really depends on having Emma around. And so that sort of small moment of kind of lowering your power, what does that do? That allows me to see Emma's perspective a little bit more. That's inherently good, but it's also effective. Why? Because if I see Emma's perspective more, more clearly, I can say, oh, maybe there's a reason that Emma, this would be good for Emma to do this new assignment. Maybe there's something in it for Emma. Maybe I can understand the source of some of Emma's resistance and do something to allay those concerns. Maybe Emma feels I'm not totally up to speed on this, so I say, Emma, you know what? Don't go out into the field for two weeks. Spend two weeks actually studying up on this. If I understand your perspective, you're more likely to summon your own. It goes back to the question thing. This is so central in any kind of persuasion or motivation. We tend to think that motivation, persuasion, is something that one person does to another. And it's not. It's something that people do for themselves. And what you want to do is you want to put people in, you want to create the context, the situations where people summon their own autonomous, intrinsically motivated reasons for doing things. And so the way to do that is by understanding your perspective. And a way to do, understand your perspective is actually to reduce your feelings of power. So that's one aspect of, um, that's one aspect of, um, that's one aspect of attunement. That's really interesting. Right there in the center. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll repeat the question. She asked. Um, um, well, then maybe should, should we end on this question? Okay. Yeah. So let's end on this question because it's about fear. Um, <laughs> tell me. Tell me your first name. Amy. Amy asked, um, she's, she's encountered some bosses who say that the way that they are effective as bosses is if the employees fear them. That people will, that, is that essentially it? Uh, and that if, if employees aren't a little bit scared of them, they're not going to be doing their best work. And essentially, most evidence contradicts that. Um, for actually, there's some truth to it for very simple kinds of work. If you're adding up, if you're, if you're stuffing envelopes, all right? So let's say your job is to stuff envelopes, and you're scared that you're going to get something bad will happen to you if you don't stuff envelopes. You'll, you'll stuff envelopes, right? But beyond the very kind of mechanical routine work, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't work very well. Fear is an excellent motivator for getting out of a burning building. 
All right? Fear is an excellent motivator. Here's the thing. This is what Barbara Fredrickson says, too, that fear constricts. It's, fear is a very useful emotion, right? When we know to be scared. Oh, there's a saber-toothed tiger right there. I'm scared. I'm going to run like hell this way, all right? It constricts your view. When you see that saber-toothed tiger there, that's all you see. You don't see the beautiful flower over there. You don't see the lovely sunrise over there. There's a freaking saber-toothed tiger. I've got to get out of the way, all right? Fear, fear constricts. And that constricted view is very good for certain kinds of things, for things with short time horizons, for things that you know precisely what to do. Run. But when you're talking about work, the kind of work that most people here are doing, that requires judgment, that requires discernment, that requires conceptual thinking, that requires um, um, uh, asking good questions, that requires maybe taking a few risks, fear as a motivator is a terrible motivator. It's terrible. Um, it's terrible. And um, so I think that boss is an idiot. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> thanks. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared debates, talks and discussions free on iTunes. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.